Welcome to Who Runs This Park, a podcast where you are invited into the hearts and stories of those who have committed their careers to the protection and preservation of our great national parks. Who Runs This Park aims to be a catalyst for inspiration, highlighting all that goes into managing our national parks and building a sense of appreciation for the invaluable beauty, diversity, and history of our protected lands. Life is too short to eat boring granola. Granarly, the world's one and only whiskey granola, fills that void. When I was a student at the University of Texas, I worked with Granarly, a granola company based in Austin, falling in love with both the granola and the mission. Go to granarly.com with code WRTP15 to get 15% off to fuel your next adventure. See show notes for more details. Today, we have David Smith with us, the Golden Gate National Recreation Area Superintendent. As one of the largest urban parks globally, Golden Gate National Recreation Area is unique in that it supports 19 distinct ecosystems and contains 37 distinct park sites, namely Alcatraz Island, Muir Woods National Monument, and Fort Point National Historic Site. David himself has been superintendent at Golden Gate National Parks since January of 2023, with over 31 years in the Park Service, having previously been superintendent of Joshua Tree National Park since 2014. Today, we have the privilege of hearing David's story and learning about his skill set in relationship building and engaging local communities, and getting a glimpse into his heart and passion for our national parks. Welcome to the podcast. Well, Maddie, with your description of of Golden Gate, I'm so excited. I want to go visit it right now. Oh, actually, I am here right now, so this is good. You did a really nice job of describing what I think is really one of the crown jewels of the entire system. I think most people think Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, but Golden Gate, you've got so many people that live here, you Mm -hmm. know, in San Francisco and Oakland, San Mateo counties, Marin counties, and to have this, you know what looks like wilderness up in the Marin Headlands, to have this incredible urban site and to have great resources down in San Mateo County. It's a it's a really special place. So thank you for having me here. Yeah, of course. I know I'm excited to learn more about it and hear kind of, yeah, your experience at the park. And then as I've learned interviewing different superintendents, many people have a long experience and history within the park service itself. And so it's kind of an opportunity to just learn about all the different roles that kind of play into keeping our parks open and available for everyone. And I think I read in an interview, I want to pull this up. I thought it was something really cool that you had said, kind of what drove you to the park service, but just how the mission is twofold. It's not just like conserving to conserve, but it's also providing for that enjoyment today and in the here and now. And I think it's cool how you get to be in, like you said, San Francisco is such a highly urban population. So there is that ability to have people interact with the park daily if they can and want to. Well, you you described the Organic Act. The Organic Act is the enabling legislation for the National Park Service. And it's this constant dichotomy that every park employee, whether you're a wage grade three custodian or whether you're a park superintendent, you know, you're, you're battling with that every day about how do I provide an opportunity for every single person to yeah. really enjoy this place while at the same time conserving it forever? So it's, it's, a, it's a big battle. Yeah. And I'd, I'd be curious later in our conversation to hear, I just I know that the San Francisco area has gotten a lot of rain this year. So I'm sure that creates different things in itself of how do you preserve it? How do you restore things in a quick manner, but a, also a conservatory manner as well? Um, I'm putting all my, you know, big kid words on. <laughs> so you got just you got to be careful with from our from our legislation. Conservation is the word that we are supposed to be followed, and a lot of us go to preserve. Mm-hmm. There's a distinction between that. Yeah. We are we are not a museum, you know. Uh, and yeah, there there are artifacts inside of national parks that really do have to be preserved. Things like the Liberty Bell and you know yeah. things that are artifacts, you know, on you know Native American ruins and things, you know, from Mesa Verde. We, we need to preserve those as much as possible. But in general, we're not a museum. This is a place where people go to enjoy themselves. And so there is going to be degradation of the resource that occurs. But, you know, can we do it in a way that still allows for everyone to continue to enjoy it? We'll get to talking about kind of the here and now and your role as superintendent at Golden Gate National Parks. But I want to take a step back and, you know, get to understand what led you to this place. What originally was your experience as a kid in nature was, you know, 
being in the park service or being drawn to national parks a part of something you thought of? Well, my, my mom and dad are great people, but they're pretty cheap. And they recognized early on that camping was something that we could do and we could afford. Yeah. My, my dad had a, a dune buggy. And so we'd head out from the suburban um, San Diego environment that I was brought up in oh, nice. to go out to, to, to Glamis and other locations, you know, BLM properties with the idea that this is public land and it belongs to all of us. Yeah. And I, I don't think I got the best stewardship me messages, you know, at that time, but I did uh, have an appreciation for the land and my mom and dad would take me up to Joshua Tree uh, and Death Valley and, you know, other desert parks that were close because they love the deserts and I grew to love them too. So, at, you know, at an early age, at, you know, six, seven, eight, I was, I was camping regularly inside of parks, but I, I would say that the, the real connection happened in college much later when I, I, I had a degree in forestry, okay. I had um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I wanted to join the Peace Corps and, and work on revegetation projects. But I, I fell in love with another student that was there. You know, his name was John. And uh, the dream of going into the Park Service, I'm sorry, into the, the going into the Peace Corps, it wasn't a good time for it because they didn't have a lot of same-sex op opportunities mm. and, and placements in different countries. This would have been back in, you know, the late 80s. Okay. So, uh we uh, we took three, four months off and we camped around the United States and we drove everywhere. We drove to 47 states, camped every single night, often inside of forests or BLM sites or on public lands or or in national parks. And by the time I got up to Minnesota, I discovered that the happiest people I was meeting were park rangers. And uh, so I picked up an application there. And by the time I made my way down to Arizona, I turned it in and, you know, next May, I had a job working at Dinosaur National Monument in Utah. So it was that four-month camping trip around the United States at the age of 21 where I saw, like, this is this is where I want to go. This is yeah. what I want to do with the rest of my life. Do you feel like you had noticed throughout that trip at each park or monument the different park rangers you'd met? You were drawn to them? Or was mm -hmm. there something about, like, when you were in Minnesota you had the conversation or <laughs> well no it was just a realization by yeah. that point I, I we probably had been at 20 or 30 different park sites by that point and just the general rule of thumb were these people were super happy yeah. whether they were cleaning toilets whether they were collecting fees firefighters uh, we met a wolf biologist up at glacier they liked their jobs and yeah. I, I, at that point i had been i'd been working for a cruise ship company i'd okay. been a bartender and although i i loved those jobs. I love public service. I wasn't sure if I could do it for 30 years. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I probably can do rangering for 30 years. Yeah. You're like, hmm, I'm intrigued by this. Was John at the time, was he intrigued in the park service also, or more so something that lit a fire in your heart? No, but both of us, both of us were keen on it. He was working as a contractor building houses after the, the fire in the Oakland Hills. Okay. Um, after the fire in the Oakland Hills. So we both got jobs eventually at Dinosaur. We both went into law enforcement for the first four or five years of our career. And then uh, I started specializing more in interpretation and he continued on the, the law enforcement route cool. as we uh, traveled to, I think, 10 different parks around the United States. I think that's how many parks we've worked at now. Yeah, that's something I've learned, again, as I've interviewed superintendents, is there's a lot of moving around. I mean, people definitely stay in roles for you know, lengthy periods of time, but definitely getting a variety of like different landscapes, yeah, I, different I, issues. I counted, I counted uh, a while ago and I think we moved to, we've moved like 22 or 23 times oh my gosh. since we, since we joined the park service. And once we, once we adopted kids, we had five more moves after that okay. point. So the last 20 years has not been quite as bad. Okay. That's, you know, averaging about one move every four years or so. Which is still, uh, I mean, it's not insignificant. It's still, you know, moving around and well, <laughs> maybe comparatively, you're like, wow, I'm so, you know, rooted in this place. But Well, I, I, I think the strategy is, is whenever you go to a new place, you just jump into it. You mm -hmm. get to know the community. You know, we always yeah. joined a church as soon as we got into a, a new town. Cool. Uh, you know, try to think as if we're going to live there forever. But yeah. we're also accept the fact that, you know, we may end up moving tomorrow. Yeah. So it's, you know, you, you plan forever, but you're also thinking that, you know, tomorrow may be your last day here. Yeah, that's a tension. I'm imagining I respect the like ability to kind of dig in and have that open mindset because I think that's probably hard to 
maybe some folks are able to kind of pick that up easier than others. But I think that's very admirable of like having that mentality of we're going to dig in and we're going to like, it's not like we're going to be like, oh, we're leaving in two years. So it doesn't matter. I don't need to connect or anything. Well, it makes you a much more effective park ranger if you are part of the community. Yeah. You know, you get feedback from folks from the soccer team and from the Rotary Club and from the Elks Club and stuff like that that helps yeah. you, be, you know, do a better job at the park that you're that you're working at. So I think it's really important to be part of a community, and you certainly never get bored. Yeah, <laughs> my gosh, past. we have we have That's never awesome. been bored, uh, and honestly, we've been happy with every one of our placements around the United States. Have your kids been like? Have they grown pretty fond of the national parks throughout this move, or, or throughout yeah, the move? Yeah, you know, I, I think they. So they both have a really good appreciation for parks and the yeah. different stuff they do. But you know how kids are; they're they're <laughs> rebellious. Do, yeah. or, you know, our, our son's twenty one right now. Our daughter's nineteen. I I've noticed that neither one of them have applied for jobs at national parks. I would be <laughs> delighted if they would become firefighters or interpreters yeah. or go to the academy but yeah. my daughter wants to be a uh, she wants to be a pastry chef and oh my, my gosh, son uh, is trying to get into the uh, either the navy or the air force right now so well um, still governmental you know, agency you know tied to the government, government. I, i've been telling him i've been telling him go for the coast guard it's kind of like kind of like being a ranger although you have a much larger caliber machine gun yeah <laughs> and lots of open water to patrol or right. Who knows? Taking a step back to like Berkeley itself, what led you to study forestry? You know, it was an accident. I, I didn't. So no one in my family had ever gone to college. So I, I okay. had zero prep time to really plan things. So that first semester, I mean, I was taking poetry and medieval Chinese history and Arabic and poli sci. And I, I saw a, a class on forest entomology and pathology. It was a higher level forestry class. And that's that was my introduction to forestry. And I said, wow, these are really, really cool classes. I, yeah. I'd love to study funguses and bugs and yeah. tree harvesting and stuff like that. So I took uh, some additional classes in that. And uh, my, my, my degree was more towards, you know, it's called development studies. So okay. I, was, I was preparing to go work for the Peace Corps with right. a big concentration on forestry. But I, I would have been happy to become a forester in 1990 when I graduated. But at the time, the, the spotted owl was a big issue in the Pacific Northwest. And the Forest Service and a lot of timber harvesting companies were shutting down on, on timber harvesting as a result of that. So I had to find another job. Was it because they, the like owls were endangered from the amount of harvesting that was happening in that area? Yeah. You know, in that particular case, the owl species of concern was, uh, was endangered and it was growing in old growth forest areas. And, you know, the Forest Service and Fish and Wildlife Service and others were trying to figure out how to adapt to that. Mm -hmm. But it really, it really, you know, you talked to these communities and the Northwest, it shut down forestry pretty heavily okay. beginning in the, the early, late, late eighties, early nineties. And that was just the time when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I, when I became an adult. So as you said, you and John entered, I think first as law enforcement park rangers. Yeah, we, we actually got jobs as interpreters the first year at Dinosaur. Then we went okay. to the Academy up in Santa Rosa. So oh. if you want to do law enforcement in the park service, you have to attend a, a seasonal Academy. Okay. And so we both en enrolled in that and uh, loved it and then got jobs working at Canyonlands. They were both backcountry oh, nice. jobs. I was out at a place called Horseshoe Canyon, which is this amazing, amazing archaic Indian site with these amazing drawings on the side of the wall. And then he was a uh, backcountry okay. out in the maze. And we did that for a few years. And then we went on to, uh, he got a job at Joshua Tree. I got a job at Cabrillo down in San Diego. Okay. And then we did, this is the craziest thing. We, we left the agency for a year and worked for the Border Patrol. Really? Because at the time, we, we couldn't get permanent jobs in the National Park Service. Okay. You had to already be a permanent employee to get a permanent job. A little catch-22. You're like, how does, how does that happen? You know, there used to be a clerk typist test you could take and you could become a secretary. Okay. That was one way of getting around it so you could get into the Park Service. But this was a way to expedite it. And at the time, the IRS... And the Bureau of Prisons and the Border Patrol were hiring. And we figured, you know, Border Patrol work was kind of similar to being a ranger out in the backcountry. Yeah. You get to learn Spanish. Yeah. And it's, 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 the, same, it's the same training program that, that we go through. All federal agents go to a place called Fletzy. It's down in southern Georgia. Oh. And, you know, you learn the same 
basic defensive tactics, same shooting, same driving skills and stuff like that. So I spent a year doing that before I, I rejoined the Park Service and got my first permanent job at uh, Joshua Tree. So the permanent job and, counted, like the permanent job with the Border Patrol counted as a full-time job. So then you could transfer per that rule. Exactly. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, and, and so I was able to apply for a job at Joshua Tree. And then after that, I worked for a trail that goes from Mexico up to uh, San Francisco. So the, the Spanish training really came in effective. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's called the Anza Trail, the Juan Bautista de Anza National Historic Trail. Okay. So it was the superintendent and me that was the two of us that was the only staff on this 1,200-mile trail. Wow. And my job was to work with local governments to get them to help us build trail segments. I would dress up like a soldado de cuera. So this is one of the Spanish colonial soldiers. Uh -huh. And I would go do school programs in, wow. in California and Arizona and Sonora and down in Sinaloa. Um, wow. So I'd work in, in Mexico as well. It was, it was, you know, did a lot of media, um, did a lot of writing. Uh, it was it was a fun experience. I did that for four years. Was the media or the writing was for bringing awareness of the trail or? Yeah, it was it was, you know, doing newsletters for the trail, writing exhibits for the trail okay. that we would place along the air to tell the story of how this colonial trail interacted with indigenous populations along the way. It was a good experience. Yeah, I can imagine there were challenges in some communities maybe being more open to helping with funding mm -hmm. for trail refurbishment and just a lot of navigating. The Park Service didn't does not own most, most of the trail, you know, okay. except for segments that it goes through other national park units right. in areas that go through the BLM or through Forest Service sites and things like that. So it was really working out a partnership with local governments, yeah. which was a big thing. When, when that happened, that's about at the same time we, we adopted our kids. So okay. I was working for the Anza Trail, you know, Dante first and then Jakaya a couple of years later. And that that really enriched our lives. Yeah. You know, John at the time was on our, our SWAT team for the Park Service. We call it SET. It's we use it for special operations. Okay. And it was right after nine it was right after nine eleven. So he was often getting dispatched to whenever we went to I, I believe it was like condition orange or or red at the time. You're probably too young to remember this, but after 9/11, we would occasionally, you know, have terrorist concerns, and we would mobilize resources. So he was forever, you know, going to D.C. or oh, interesting, or some other side around the United States. And uh, I was still having to travel a lot to work on the trail. Yeah. So I had the I had the two kids. I was getting my master's at the time, and I said, you know, finally, I, like, honey, this this isn't going to work. You're going to have to. I know you love set. I know you love being part of this team, and he's he's a really good marksman and mm. uh, a really good leader. I said, you know, can can we cut back just a little bit? Yeah. So he continued his job working here at Golden Gate. Okay. As a as a law enforcement ranger, and I worked on the trail, and then we were transferred to Grand Canyon, and we spent the next four or five years at Grand Canyon. Loved it. Oh my gosh, oh my that gosh. was an amazing yeah. place because you've got a community of, you know, close to a thousand people living on the South Rim. Our kids okay. are able to walk to school. Do people live? Is the South Rim the only the North Rim? Are there any communities nearby, or is that pretty wilderness? Yeah, the North Rim is 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 seasonal because of all the snow. Uh, it is closed down for about six months a year, and so most there, although there's I think there's one or two families that live out there year round. Most either go to Flagstaff or Williams. But we were there on the South Rim. John was the Canyon District Ranger and I was the naturalist on the South Rim. And man, to you know, raise your children at the Grand Canyon was amazing. From a diversity standpoint, you know, you had kids in their school that were coming from the Hopi Reservation or from yeah. the Navajo or they were from Havasupai. Um, and then, uh, you know, lots of folks from, from Mexico who lived in the gateway towns nearby. Okay. So for, we have a, a multiracial family. It was really neat to be at the Grand Canyon to find, uh, a lot of diversity in our lives. So, uh, I have very fond memories of that time. And did you say you were an, a naturalist there? Yeah. So that's the term we use for interpreters. Those are the people okay. that, that talk to, to folks so I, I manage the interpretive in operations okay. on the south side of the Grand Canyon and then down into the bottom of the canyon down at Phantom. And John did uh, law enforcement in the canyon, which was exciting. But also, the, I think probably the most exciting was was EMS and, okay. you know, helicopter operations and things like that. We Because we would we would do these short haul things where the ranger would hang from the bottom of the helicopter. Oh, my. And, you know, you'd be placed you'd be placed with a, a patient, you know, who's on the sides of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And it was 
I mean, for, for John, it was a really fun um, time to live and work at Grand Canyon. Yeah, I mean, there's not many places. I mean, maybe the farther out in the wilderness you go. But yeah, to be doing those types of like rescues or recoveries via helicopter. I mean, that's a pretty, you know, I would say it unique was, was, experience. <laughs> yeah, we, we thought it was pretty good. Uh, and then after that, I applied for a job for the, it's called the Bevanetto Fellowship. And the Park Service has a ranger who gets assigned to the House and one that gets assigned to the Senate. And so I worked for the House for uh, a year. And then okay. I worked for the director's office for about a year. And it was an amazing, oh my gosh. To so that was in, in DC. DC, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, so so you're, we lived in D.C. We wanted to get the full experience. You yeah. know, the kids went to school there. It was probably our, our most challenging placement as a family, just because the the kids weren't used to living in such a big city. You know, it was a uh, yeah. I mean, they they didn't feel super comfortable and safe all the time. So after that, I assumed the the superintendency ship over at uh, Brown versus Board of Education, right? Which is a little teeny park over in Kansas uh, in Topeka which is the very first school that was desegregated after the Brown decision. So it's it was such a significant place with yeah, that's you know, cool lots for of to be there. folks coming from around the world to see, you know, where it all ended and, yeah. you know, how we got to where we are today. And I have to say, you know, Kansas was the place where our family probably had the most joy. Wow, you know, uh, that's awesome. They, the kids loved it. They loved just the culture that was there. People were incredibly welcoming and and loving. And so uh, we have very fond memories of, of Kansas. Yeah, that's cool. I um, Yeah, it's fun to hear about just the different placements, I guess, and just the different experiences your family got to have in mm-hmm. each place. One question I have about interpretation, because I know that is a thread throughout your career. Is that interpreting in different languages or is it more communicating the values or history or importance of the park to the visitors? Well, my, my mother would love it if all the French and Spanish and Arabic and Greek I took over the years would actually pay off. And I was <laughs> a real interpreter, but it actually <laughs> means interpreting the resource. There's a guy named Freeman oh. Tilden, and he's kind of the the forefather of interpretation in the park okay. service. He's the guy that came up with the idea of, of how, how to communicate the resource to people so that it can make heartfelt connections with, with the public. So we use that term specifically for the naturalists who are out there that are working with the public. And then when you went to the fellowship, so in a preparation for this interview, was looking into it a little bit, it sounds like you have to apply. And how is one placed in either the House or the Senate? Like, is it random or is it just based on the other applicant? I think the whoever is is doing the hiring, you know, sees what kind of strengths you have yeah. that might be better suited for one side or the other. The, the House tends to be a little bit more political. Okay. You know, than the, than the Senate side does just because of the nature of the, the two-year cycle that runs through the House, whereas in the Senate, you've got folks that are there for six years at a time. You know, I, I had a chance to work in Washington for a year and a half. You know, for the last 12, 13 years, I've worked with our congressional delegations, you know, at in Kansas and in California, now up here in the Bay Area. I don't care what party you're from members of Congress love their national parks. That's Just like, cool. you know, most most American people and probably people around the world, they look to the national parks as something that's kind of nonpartisan yeah. because it belongs to all of us. And it, they, they tell our collective stories. Sometimes the stories are super hard. You know, yeah. in a place like Manzanar, where, you know, you're talking about Japanese internment or Andersonville, which was uh, a Civil War POW camp, mm-hmm. which, you know, the, the conditions were just horrible where, you know, people were, were dying there. So you've got all these terrible stories, you know, 9-11, you know, telling the story of 9-11 at the, the, the Pennsylvania site, you know, that, that's a really, really, really tough story. But in general, everyone I worked with, you know, in the House and, you know, folks I've worked with in the Senate since then, we're very like, man, what can I do to help the parks? What can I do to to take care of our national parks? And so they use that they use that second person pronoun. These are our parks. They belong yeah. to every one of us. Which is, you know, it's unique that there's something that can be that binding nature. And yeah, that's a special thing to have people referring to it as like taking that ownership of being like, this is our thing. And I feel like when you take ownership, you want to protect it. You want to steward it. You want to, it kind of, I don't know, shifts the perspective a little bit of maybe being more respectful towards the leave no trace mentality and stuff like that. So that's cool that you got to see that. And it warms my heart that you get to see that in the house. 
and the Senate, you know? Yeah, it was fantastic. I saw lots of members from different parties coming together. In general, you know, almost everything was done through, you know, c- consensus. Yeah. And, you know, we very seldom had to take, you know, these these tough votes because they would just agree to most of the stuff because, like I said, folks love their national parks. And were you, are the people in the Bevanetto Fellowship, are they... Is your role to be a representative for the Park Service or what what position are you playing? Well, honestly, you're a member of the staff of the committee that you're assigned to. So at the time I was working for the Natural Resources Committee, my job was to work for the chief of staff of that committee, regardless of what the party is, you know, you know, coming up and and helping generate testimony or putting together a a congressional hearing, you know, an oversight hearing or a field hearing or something like that. And then, you know, they're relying on your experience to help them better understand some of the, the issues inside the field. So right. it's really it's it's really important that you maintain a separation because we're we're executive branch employees. We work right. for we work for the president. Right. But when you're in that fellowship, you really do work for the legislature. And you know, you just you gotta make sure that you are focused in solely on working for the legislature so that you can develop trust. Did you going into the fellowship because I'm I'm imagining myself, I would have to, you know, in history class and through these things, I know the inner workings to an extent of our government. But did you find yourself having to like learn a lot of the processes and stuff as a part of the house? Well, luckily, uh, I was brought up on Schoolhouse Rock. So I knew all about how a bill becomes a law from watching (laughs) lots of cartoons as a child growing up. So that was that was probably all I needed to know to to get there. Yeah, shout out. Shout (laughs) out to them. I'm thinking of the I'm just a bill song. Well, I'm only a bill. Yeah, I'm I used to. I, I would play that cartoon. I stole it from my children from their uh, DVD collection. Whenever I was training park rangers that came to Washington D.C. that wanted to learn more about Congress, I would show them that. You would be shocked about how much. Uh, our fellow brothers and sisters in the United States do not know about how bills become laws. But I'm, I'm a I'm a quick study, Maddie, and so I I did spend a lot of time brushing up. But I, I do love American history and and civics, so it's it's something I'm passionate about. So I was I think I was well suited for it. So uh, the job opened up at Joshua Tree after yeah. that, and that's my mom and dad still live down in San Diego County, which is two or three hours drive from there. And I thought, you know, they're they're getting older. My my uncle was he had come down with Parkinson's, but I wanted to be close to him. And uh, we wanted the diversity that we thought we were going to get from uh, out in California uh, for our family. Uh, You know, there's a Marine base in town at 29 Palms. And gosh, I and I love Joshua Tree because it was the very first park I'd camped at as a kid. And it was the it was the park that John got his first permanent job at. So we were thrilled, thrilled to well, it was hard to say goodbye to Kansas because we loved everyone there so much. But we, man, it was it was an amazing almost 10 years we spent at Joshua Tree at a time when visitation went from about a million people a year to about 3 million people wow. a year in the course of like five years. And, you know, trying to figure out how to adapt to that change in visitation patterns. That was hard. Yeah. Was that a trend across a lot of the national parks during that time frame? Or do you feel like it was unique to Joshua Tree? No other park saw the same increases that Joshua Tree saw. Okay. Uh, there are other parks were, were seeing increases, but it was, you know, two, three, four percent a year. We were seeing, you know, 25, 30 percent increases every year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the infrastructure was not designed for that. Yeah. So uh, it was a great learning process for me mm-hmm. uh, and for our staff on how to really make sure that we're living up to the organic act. You know, are we conserving this resource? So yeah. we can put parking lots everywhere, but that's not doing a very good job of conserving the resource. Are we allowing for its enjoyment? Well, if you're sitting in traffic, you know, your entire time, is yeah. that really enjoying the resource? I, I was, a, it was a wonderful opportunity to be there. And gosh, finest people I have ever worked in my life. Wow, that's uh, awesome. Really, really brilliant people and some some great adventures while we were there. And then when this job opened up, it was, you know, both of our kids had had left home to go to college or to be on their own. All of our pets had died. And we were <laughs> oh thinking, gosh. man, this, this is probably our last move we're going to be able to do before we get too old. So let's yeah. go for it. And uh, John was delighted. And this is where his family's from. We both went to Cal over in Berkeley. Nice. Uh, we still have a lot of friends that are here. And it was like, wow, this is, this is going to be a fun adventure. And the last five months have definitely demonstrated this is a fun adventure. We're really lucky to be here. Yeah, that's awesome. What job was John doing while y'all were at Joshua Tree? So John is a special agent. He does major felonies for the Park Service. Okay. 
and he he just gets assigned temporarily around the country to work on on different projects. Okay, cool. Yeah, there's oh man, there's so much of just that happens. You know, I don't even think about like from the law enforcement perspective. There's a lot that goes on in the parks, and yeah, the rescue and recovery, and then just all the like engagement across all the different groups you're working with. I know that and I'll link it in like the show notes once this gets published, but I know you did a TED talk on civic engagement within national parks. And I would love to talk a little bit about that and kind of hear what got you involved in that, what inspired you to give that talk, stuff like that. I think the seeds were planted back in 2000. I was able to attend a conference where Director Stanton he was our first African-American director of the National Park Service, and he he really lit a fire under me, uh, like being able to see that, you know, parks belong to all of us. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure that the stories that are that for all of us are out there and they're yeah. being told. And so it, it's really been that fire has continued to run through me ever since. The only way you can actually find that out is if you actually talk to the people uh, in your communities yeah. and others to see what they, they expect out of their parks. So I am a middle-class white dude from San Diego. You know, my, my family's Catholic and I'm pretty working class family. You know, that's, that's yeah. my background if you want to know. So we like to go camping. We're not terribly educated. Uh, you know, if you if I were to design all the parks, you know, there'd be lots of camping opportunities and probably places to ride dune buggies. But <laughs> luckily, I am not in charge of all the national parks. I uh, and that's where you have to really reach out to the communities around yeah. to find out, hey, what what is what what is meaningful to you about these places? Uh, yeah. What is going to resonate for you? When I was working on my master's, uh, you know, working with with Chicano communities uh, in Los Angeles and in the Bay Area, looking at you know, what, what were their ex- expectations of a national park? For many of these communities that were first generational, you know, you had two or three generations of people living inside that household um, that may, were not brought up with some of the same traditions that, that I had been brought up with camping. Yeah. So this, I'm just going to pick like one particular group that I, you know, have, have studied a fair amount. If you've got grandma you know, living with you and you've got young kids living with you, you know, you're going to need some recreational opportunities that are, are not predicated on having to go into wilderness for, you know, a few days and having lots and lots of equipment, especially if you're, if you maybe only have one day off a week, you know, you go into a park and you want to maybe have a picnic opportunity. You know, a lot of our, our, Parks are not designed for big picnics. We don't often don't even have picnic areas inside of national parks. So for me, that was an epiphany. I'm just using one community yeah. that I worked with to talk about about how sometimes the infrastructure that we design inside of a park doesn't necessarily meet the needs of what that group was after. So uh, it, the only way you learn these lessons is by talking to people yeah. about them. There's a great case example that took place, and I think it was in a I think it was a Bureau of Rec site in Texas where you know families were coming in and they they kept on moving the picnic tables together so you could have a long line of picnic tables so you could have you know 20 people sitting together and finally the bureau of rec they um i think they chained down the tables so they couldn't be moved because mm. they were like well you you know you can't be moving the tables well they they failed to recognize that at least in this particular cum- community you had large families that were coming out together so multi you know brothers and sisters and their families coming together to to enjoy the resource yeah and we didn't we did not understand that the reason they were moving the tables was because they wanted to all be together yeah, and sit, sit next together to each other. as opposed into separate places. Like, you know, the traditional folks that have been visiting national parks might've been a much smaller nuclear family. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the one, like the occasional table or the tables that you see inside of in campgrounds uh, meet that need. Yeah. And it's cool to have that awareness to it. Like, you know, have that, I guess, flexibility and being like, okay, like this is the current infrastructure of the park, but you know, are we flexible to adapt and change it to better meet the needs of the surrounding community? Like you said, and maybe that's different at different parks and looks in different ways rather than yeah, maybe the nuclear family and the spread out picnic tables and all of that. Well, and, and you know, since since then, you know, I, especially I would say maybe the last three or four years when there's been a, a significant rise in the consciousness of, of communities in the United States that are not being represented inside the parks. You know, we see this, this Im, Im really important community need to mm-hmm. reach out to communities that are typically not coming into parks and let them know that they're welcome inside those parks. So you're, you know, you're going to see, you know, programs that are targeting, you know, the gay community, you know, specifically. Mm-hmm. So when, uh, when, when Stonewall was created as a national historic site, it was created, you know, specifically to tell the story 
of of the gay liberation movement. Yeah. When the Charles when the Charles Young site was created, and I think that was during the last administration. You know, it tells the story of of the very very first African American Rangers. You know, Charles Young was the first you know Buffalo soldier that was assigned out at at Yellowstone and actually became a de facto superintendent. So you know that really is a an, a story that's important to reaching out to African American communities. So you're going to see through civic engagement mm-hmm. that these these opportunities are out there for every single park. You know, I, I don't care where you are inside the United States. You know, you can find those connections that can can help people. And sometimes it may not be quite as obvious. Yeah. Sometimes it's a story of, of a family that's struggling struggling out there. But that story of, of a family struggling, you know, that God, that resonates with just about every community across the United States. Yeah. I don't know any family that hasn't had some struggles. And you can talk about, you know, some of our Midwestern parks and some of our prairie parks about, you know, what it means to 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 struggle and rely on each other. And then it's there's something special. And if people see themselves in a story, then it maybe makes them feel more comfortable or want to go to that park and also experience it because they're like, well, I'm not the first one. Like that feels scary. So they just feel like they're supported in that endeavor. That's cool. Well said. Yes. So that's that's why I, I think civic engagement is foundational. And also there's just so you know, there, there's a legal obligation when you manage the people's land like a national park through a thing called the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA. We, we really do have the obligation to to listen to what the community has to say. But I think even more importantly, if you want to be a good park manager, yeah, there's the legal obligation, but there's the there's the moral obligation as well. And it's cool to have both of those things pair together to help you move forward and make decisions and stuff like that. So thinking, well, I have one question that I've been wondering about. So with the law enforcement training, just a curiosity that I have, it, say you were a law enforcement agent for like NYPD or something like that, would you, and then you wanted to move to being a law enforcement agent in the park service, do you go through that same training that yourself and John went through, or is it kind of your like grandfathered in, in a sense? No, you, you historically, what you, you'd still have to do, you'd have to go to a seasonal academy. Okay. So after you, you may have been, you may have been a cop in, in, I don't know, Toledo for 10 years, you go to a law enforcement academy because half of it is you're learning resource law. So you're learning, you know, 16 USC and 18 USC. So federal codes uh, that are specific to conservation and federal criminal law. And then you've got to learn all the, the regulations of the park service that are within 36 CFR. And okay. then you got to learn how we do business in the park service, which may be different from your local agency. Now, the way we're doing it is we're trying to get folks to go to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center first. So when people oh, cool. get hired into the park service, we want to give them the, the four-month training that you would get that all federal agents get. So whether you're um, Bureau of Prisons, uh, you work for Treasury, you work for the Forest Service, you work for the Park Service, everyone has this kind of basic class. Was that the training that you did in Georgia? Related to the Border Patrol? Exactly. Okay, right. okay. Yeah. And then the Park Service then has a special, um, some additional stuff you have to learn. Cool. Thank you. That was, my curiosity was like, wait, I want to know more about that. But jumping into, you know, where you are now in the Golden Gate National Parks, tell me what the last, I guess, yeah, five months have been like adjusting to the new role. Well, when I arrived, we had a whole bunch of climate change related precipitation, you know, mm-hmm. Mount Tam, which is uh, just to the north of the park unit. In, in the course of one month in January, it received 39 inches of rain. So, you know, that is that is three and a half feet of rain. And, uh, you know, we had we had uh, somewhat reduced levels throughout the park, but that that involved a lot of, of sloughing off of cliffs, right. significant damage to, to infrastructure along the beaches, trails that don't exist any long, longer. So it was a little bit of a, of a maintenance nightmare. Yeah. Um, but luckily, we have a well-oiled machine of some incredibly competent people that were out there opening up roads, opening up trails, doing emergency repairs and things like that. Since since then, I, you know, I, I spent about two months getting to know the park. Okay. It, it is a, you know, it, size wise, it's it's not that big. It's eighty thousand acres, you know, okay. compared to Joshua Tree, which is ten times that size. But it's got all these these. As, as I used to say with, with English muffins, lots of nooks and crannies to hold mm, the melted mm-hmm. butter. You know, this, this, this park has lots of nooks and crannies. You know, you've got Muir Woods, which is this amazing story of a chunk 
of coastal redwoods that were um, that were preserved, you know, and not cut down after the big earthquake in 1906 to, to create this national monument. You know, you've got, you know, the Civil War fort, this totally intact Civil War fort underneath the Golden Gate Bridge yeah. in Alcatraz, you know, which tells the story of, of incarceration, but it also tells the story today of, of our of our justice system in the United States and, and folks that, that are incarcerated at rates that are higher than other people. So it's a it's a complicated political story. You know, we've got, you know, the Presidio that's included inside the National Park Unit, which is tells the story of Spanish coming up here in 1776 and, you know, 250 years of an army post located inside of the park. The Nike missile sites up in the the Marin Headlands where we actually had, you know, nuclear missiles that were targeting incoming bombers from from the Soviet Union back in the, the 60s, you know, that are. We, we, we bring visitors down into these sites and oh everything gosh. in between. It is, it, is an ex- it is an extremely exciting park. Lots of public beaches. Okay. You know, so Ocean Beach, you know, heavily used in the summertime. Stinson Beach, where we do our surf camp for young lifeguards, junior lifeguards. Oh, cool. Uh, there's just lots, lots and lots of things going on. So Golden Gate has a really first rate program for, for lifeguards. I'm super proud of them. Wow. I was watching them test the other day. So out in the open water, you know, swimming 500 yards in less than 10 minutes. You know, I, and that's I, like, it's way beyond. That is not calm water. Like just no, anything no, on the Pacific is just not. five degrees. It is, it's freezing out there. And the, the gal who, you know, came in first, she did it in five minutes and 50 seconds. She is like the best swimmer I've ever oh my seen gosh. in my entire life. And she's out there. So I am super proud of our of our so um, are those, lifeguard program. Are those lifeguards training to be lifeguards at like these beaches? Yeah, they, they work at beaches where we have, you know, folks that are swimming out in the ocean. But okay. we also have a fair amount of ocean rescue that goes on here. You know, we've got a lot of coastline. We have folks that make mistakes and gets, you know, sucked out or, you know, they're overcome by the temperatures that are out there. And so they're out there saving lives all the time. Wow. So that's interesting. We've, we're unique in that we actually have park police as well as park rangers. The park police primarily work in the Presidio because it's much more of an, an urban type environment where mm-hmm. you've got lots of residential folks that are living there as well as as businesses and are doing more of the kind of day-to-day police work you might associate with a police department but they back up our rangers you know Mm -hmm. we just the other day we had a oh we had a report of someone you know with a rifle you know in the north of the Mm. park on a hiking trail and so park police were up there with park rangers instantly to to make sure that everything was all right and that people were moved removed from the area and they were protected so we're very blessed to have park police here as well the so the Presidio I've been reading the Presidio tunnel tops are new correct Oh man that is the most exciting 1.8 million visitors to this little chunk of parkland in the last uh, 11 months or so wow. so that was a partnership between the the Presidio our conservancy which is our friends group that raises money for the national park and for the Presidio and the park itself and it's part of a of a Caltrans project to provide a this tunnel on the major artery that leads into the Golden Gate Bridge. And so on top of this tunnel, you know, we were able to create these incredible parks that will, that connect the bay with the rest of the Presidio. So, uh, you know, we we developed the Bay Area, we developed the Presidio, and now with tunnel tops, it is this transition that goes from 1776 and indigenous people living here for the last 10,000 years, all the way down to coastal marshlands. And then in the park area, we've got parks that young people want to use inside of a city environment. Yeah. So they're super creative. So I'm, I'm really proud of them and I, I'm so excited to have them here. Yeah, that's cool. So with, I mean, we've talked about so many of the things that make the Golden Gate National Parks unique just in, I mean, the diversity of the different groups and lands mm-hmm. it covers. What in your exploration period, what has been one of your favorite things you've discovered about the parks? <sighs> Well, this this is esoteric, but the uh, the public's devotion to this particular park mm. has been fascinating. I ran the the Dipsy Trail. There's a race every year that goes from um, Mill Valley out to Stenson Beach in the Marin Headlands, and it's you know, it's, it's, a, it's like a seven mile trail. So it's nothing terribly difficult, but the elevations are crazy. And there's yeah. all these stairs up and down and you're going through these redwoods. It was lined with people, you know, cheering us on the whole way and ringing cowbells. That's cool. You know, they had set up little aid stations along the route. So the devotion that 
the, the folks that live in this area have to their national parks and things like, you know, this trail were just stunning. So yeah. I, I love, I love that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm situated right now in Fort Mason. This used to be the headquarters oh, cool. for, uh, the army, you know, and I'm, I got this incredible view of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, I, I love Fort Mason. I love seeing people come out here on the yard to play soccer. I love seeing, you know, college kids come out here to watch the sunset and German visitors ride their bikes up here and be blown away by the incredible views. I mean, it's, it's a silly portion of the park, but it is, it is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. That I haven't been to San Francisco much, but I've seen, I've been to that fort and just, yeah, it's a pretty Uh stunning view of just the bay and the the bridge and um yeah that's a cool not a shabby spot for your office view no i feel i'm very very lucky to to be here although it is super cold because it is a uh, a pre-world war ii structure with really bad windows mm. and so when i get in the morning it's usually in the 50s oh my and gosh. it takes that yeah. so I, I i wore my long underwear for my first three months while i was here oh so i could gosh. stay warm enough yeah, some pros, some cons, you know. Looking back at just the different roles you've had within the National Park Service, what, who are some, like, people that stand out to you? I'm sure it sounds like you've been really surrounded by great people through your whole career mm-hmm. and through, like, your family's different places y'all have been. But do you yeah. feel like there are any people that stick out to you that really kind of impacted what role you took next or just the, like, next place that your family moved? Well, so the, the current superintendent over at Yosemite, her name's Cicely Muldoon. She she has always been a mentor to me and someone that I've looked up to. She's She always believes that community mattered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she really emphasized the importance of um, really being completely engaged with the community. And that was important to me. So I learned a lot from her. Down south, Mike Reynolds is the superintendent down at Death Valley. You know, he, this is a guy, you know, it's, it's a big park. It is, yeah. uh, it's the biggest national park in the lower 48. And, you know, he has kept his EMT qualifications always where they should be so that in the middle of the night, if they can't find someone, he will jump into the ambulance and drive out wow. to get, you know, a patient from the park over to Pahrump or wherever the nearest medical, you know, assistance is going to be. And his his devotion to uh, the job has been a great example for me as well. When I when I was first season as a National Park Service Ranger, I'm working in Dinosaur, and the superintendent at the time, his name was Danny Huffman. He came on a Sunday to watch my campfire program, and I was in Utah, and he was in Colorado, and he drove his chopper up, and he had this kind of fringy-looking leather jacket. He looked really tough, and I didn't even know it was him, and he sat in the back row, and I gave my program. It was one of the very first I ever gave, and he goes, after it was all over, he said, David, you know, hey, it's Danny. I'm the park superintendent. Good to see you again. Just want you to know you're doing a great job oh, and wow. what a joy it was to see your program and uh, just keep on doing what you're doing, Dave. And to, to have someone, you know, in his position reach down to me in my position, it was so meaningful. And at that point, I knew like if I could do something like half as good as he's doing right now, if I can help to inspire some of the staff that are young to continue to do that work, that's what I want to do. And that's one of the reasons I became a superintendent was because of, of Denny's model. You know, he, he retired, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, 20, probably 20 years ago. By now. <laughs> I, 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 but he was a he was a big inspiration to me. Yeah, that's cool. And I think that that takes like a lot of time and also just to have that continued level of interest. Say you've been the superintendent somewhere for a long time, like to continue that interest and show the people who are new and like all of that who are doing these programs that you like care about what they're doing. And it's not I don't know, that's it's admirable. So I can see that kind of sticking with you for a while. Well, I mean, it's but it gives us joy too, Maddie. Yeah, you know, that's I, true. It, I, I mean, I when I go home at night, I feel super, super good. If I was working in a widget factory, you know, if I, I, I don't know, if I was working, you know, packing packages all day, probably wouldn't have the same level of satisfaction I get every night. I, I sleep really well because I've, I've put in a lot of work that day, and yeah. hopefully, I've made some sort of a difference. And that's, that's invaluable. So it's totally for selfish reasons that I wanted to follow <laughs> Denny and yeah. Sicily and, and Mike's, Mike's models because. Uh, uh, they did such a good job. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I want to just thank you for your time. It's been such a pleasure to hear a little bit about your story and yeah, just the different places you and your family have gotten to experience throughout the U.S. What I'd love to ask at um, the end of all the interviews is for each park. So for you, the Golden Gate National Park, what is something and we've talked about it a little bit, but what is something that you wish everyone knew about the Golden Gate National Parks, regardless if they've been or not? Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> One thing. <laughs> One yeah, thing to... <laughs> we're going to tell them about. Yeah, that's the only piece a, of information is... they'll remember. They're going to know. Well, I would say 
that you can go camping here in an urban environment at Golden Gate National Recreation Area. So up in the Marin Headlands, we have a number of campgrounds that you can reserve online through rec.gov and you can actually stay in here. So you can ride your bike to some of these locations. You can drive your car to some of these locations. And I don't think people realize that in San Francisco, you know, inside of the Marin Headlands of Golden Gate, you can actually camp inside your park with amazing views, you know, uh, and just coastal fog coming in in the morning. It's, It's pretty special. So that's maybe something a lot of folks don't know about GGNRA. I mean, even in my preparation research. I didn't know that. So for me, selfishly, thanks. <laughs> Next time hey, in no San Francisco. So if, you, <laughs> if, you, if you make it out here, and please, Maddie, if you do make it out here, I'd, I'd love to see. I'd love to show you around, take you out to the Nike missile sites. Yeah, that would be um, awesome. You know, go out to Alcatraz and, and see the different layers of history and see like this amazingly provocative exhibit we have right now talking about social justice. That's and, cool. You know, incarceration in America today. It's a really powerful exhibit. That's in Alcatraz right now. That's at Alcatraz Earth. right now. Cool. Which I'm headed to yeah. this afternoon to meet with the staff to talk about some um, work that we're doing on the piers out there. Cool. As well as some seismic retrofitting to the walls of the of the prison. Seismic. I'm guessing earthquake proofing. Earthquake. Earthquake. Yes. So remember, we're on the San Andreas Fault yes. here in California, yeah. right through San Francisco. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so you got to make sure that everything is is safe and protected. Man. Yeah. Well, sounds like a great day ahead of you. And yeah, I'll definitely keep you posted if I'm across the country in San Francisco. Please give me a call. Uh, And uh, thanks so much for what you're doing and telling the story about parks. I think, you know, these parks, I will say it again, they belong to all of us. You know, you don't like, but I tell junior rangers uh, when I'm swearing them in sometimes, I will tell them like, hey, do you guys have a job yet? And they'll be like, I don't have a job. And I'll say, you know what? You don't even have a job yet. You own 420 plus national park sites across the United States. And who's going to take care of them? You guys are. You. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that's the cool thing about parks. They belong to all of us. One of yeah. the cool things about being a member of this planet and uh, is that smart people before you and me, Maddie, got together and said, let's protect some of the very most special things in the United States. I know. And that's, I mean, that's the hope candidly with the podcast is just to like show. And for me, again, selfishly, like I'm learning a ton and that's the idea is like showing all that goes behind and maintaining these and conserving them and all of that. So yeah, it's been a joy talking to you, David. It's a joy talking to you as well, Maddie. Uh, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. Our music was composed by Danielle Bees. If you liked this podcast, rate, review, download, and tell your friends about it. This ensures the stories of our national parks and how they are run are shared. Listen to the other episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit us at whorunsthispark.com to learn more. I'm Maddie Pellman, and you've been listening to Who Runs This Park.